0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, if you uh, take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to start reading at verse 17 so that we remember the context. Paul says, But in giving this instruction... I do not praise you, because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. As Paul is uh, dealing with the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, remember, Paul is dealing with um, what we might call worship disorders in the Corinthian church, and he starts off with head coverings and and uh, the role of men and women, and then he moves to the Lord's Supper. And in, in a sense, I take the way that he deals with head coverings sort of to be a reflection of um, sort of a mild rebuke, um, mild correction, and he's sort of warming up, in a sense, for a more serious uh, correction when it comes to the Lord's Supper. And so there's, there's three parts to Paul's treatment of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and in in a sense, the Corinthian uh, uh, abuse of it. In verses 17 to 22, which we looked at a few weeks ago, we see the Corinthians abuses at the supper. Then in verses 23 to 26, which we'll look at tonight, we see the institution of the Lord's Supper, the words of institution as they're called. And then verses 27 to 34, we see uh, various instructions and then warnings for participating in the Lord's Supper. And so you see these three very distinct movements. So a few weeks ago, we looked at the um, abuses. And the amazing thing is that Paul, who obviously um, believed that Christians must assemble together as the church, tells the Corinthians that when you assemble together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. What they were doing in their assembly was, was, was actually so counterproductive that Paul says, when you gather as the church, it actually would be better if you didn't even gather because, as he says at the end, um, it's like you're gathering for judgment. So what were they doing? Well, they were doing things that really are, are uh, virtually unimaginable to us, now Paul does say something really interesting in verse eighteen. After he sa- uh, he says uh, divisions exist in verse eighteen. So that that, by the way, is that's the fundamental issue that is going on in the observance of the supper. Okay, so they gather together for the supper, but the problem is is that these divisions exist. Now Paul makes the interesting statement in verse nineteen of the necessity of schisms. Okay. Now, <clears throat> it's always a sin to be divisive, and it's a sin to be a schismatic, but Paul says that schism actually serves a purpose. God uses factions at times to distinguish between those who are approved and those who are rejected, Uh, In other words, at times, God will use schism or division in the church to separate the phony from the genuine, all right? Um, Then Paul takes up the manifestations of the divisions that were existing. Now, remember, uh, division has been a a subject that Paul addresses all the way back in chapter 1. I hear that divisions exist among you, right? And so now he's dealing with the specifics ...of division as it is occurring as they gather for the Lord's Supper. So he, Paul says specifically, when you assemble... So assemble is going to be a technical term. When you gather as the church, he says, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, you say you're coming together for Christian worship. You say you're coming together to observe the Lord's table... Um, But the reality is, is that you're not really gathering for the intended and stated purpose. The meal, which of course is to be a shared meal, is not koinonia at all in the Corinthian assembly. In fact, not only is it not koinonia, fellowship, communion with each other through the body and blood of Jesus symbolized in the bread and the cup, but rather it, it's simply providing opportunity for there to be the fundamental uh, a division between the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, so that people are coming and they're coming not to share a meal and to share in uh, uh, Christ with each other, but they're coming to to eat and to pig out, and and even on some occasions to even be drunk. Paul's point is 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 actually very simple, and that is the the very practice of what they were doing. And, and of course, we don't know specifically the logistics. I brought up a few weeks ago. Two possibilities. One, the the wealthier who didn't have to work long hours may have been showing up to the uh, service early and then eating the food and drinking the wine before the poorer people had to work late, got there. Or it actually could be that in the um, in the larger homes of wealthy people in the Greco-Roman world, um, you had a main dining room and then you had uh, what we would base basically call a, a foyer uh, or an atrium, and it could be that the uh, the halves were gathering together in the dining room where all the good food was, and the poor were being actually left out in the foyer or the atrium, but there's this fundamental division going on, and Paul says that that the very way that you are practicing The Lord's Supper is a demonstration of how divisive you are. Now, Paul says this divisiveness, especially in the way they they partake of the supper, results first in the fact that they are despising the church of God. The very reality of of what they're doing, um, basically selfish, self-serving, Putting themselves above other people, Paul Paul says to them, by doing such a thing, you are showing contempt to the church of God. You You are disregarding God, you're marginalizing Christ when you gather together to make this about yourself. There's no love to God in that. You know, it's 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 obvious we don't I mean we don't even serve real wine at the Lord's Supper, so nobody, you know, and even if we did, nobody's going to get drunk from, you know, that much, but and we do things a little differently than it would have been done in the first century. It's absolutely unfathomable to us of coming together and drinking the communion wine to the point of being inebriated. So this is like off the charts, unbelievable to us. But yet, the fundamental root problem can still be a problem for us. And that is gathering, not for God's sake, not out of a sense of love to God, but for self-serving purposes. And Paul says when you do that, you are showing contempt to the church of God. The second result of such a sin is that you shame or humiliate those who have nothing. So there's a sense in which what the Corinthians were doing is they were showing not only no love to God, but contempt for God's church, and then they were in turn showing no love to others. They were breaking the first and the second great commandments as they came to church. It's really... Unfathomable, right? Breaking the first and second great commandments as you come to church. Which leads us to believe that sometimes religious people that go to church need to get saved, maybe even on their way to church. Now, Paul then shifts gears, but I mean, not really. So 23 to 26, it gets to the institution of the Lord's Supper. So here's, here's, here's a question, and that is, so why does Paul move from this, this strong rebuke, right? In this, I will not praise you, says at the end of verse 22. In this, I will not praise you. So he moves from this strong rebuke then to what we call the words of institution. and uh, And so... These are the words that I read every every Lord's Supper. Okay? In fact, in, in, in my old Bible, um, in fact, even in this one to some degree, so I, I had my thumb right here for so long that it just got more and more oily, and it got bigger and bigger. And one time I was doing the, the Lord's Supper just a few months ago, and I pulled my hand off of the Bible, and a big chunk of the page stuck to my thumb, right? It was just because I've just gone to that passage over and over and over again over the years, right? These are the words of institution. These are the words that we we read every time we observe the supper. And so the question is, is why does Paul go from, from this really strong rebuke regarding their divisiveness in the body than to the words of institution. I mean, we might think that maybe what he should do is maybe he should talk about the importance of the unity of the body or the love of the body. Instead, he goes to the words of institution. Now, I want to suggest to you that the reason why Paul does this in the flow of the argument is because what Paul is 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 doing is he wants the Corinthians to understand, in a sense, to be reminded and to be refocused on the reverence with which the supper is to be observed. The words of institution underscore the reverence of what is being done. When we observe the supper... It, we we observe the supper based on the very words of Jesus himself and those very words should in a sense remind us of, of of what we are doing the sobriety with which we should do it you know you know me well enough to know that I'm not opposed to to humor and you know, frankly, I'm actually quite funny, um, and I don't—I I don't even mind having a sense of natural humor. I mean, I never tell jokes, okay? But but I will tell you what: there there are times where there is to be no humor, and the Lord's Supper is one of those times no place for humor the lord's supper it is a it is a, a, a solemn occasion and so by reminding the corinthians of the words of institution paul is reminding them of how solemn this event really is He is, in a sense, refocusing them on the central themes of the supper by going back to those words of institution. Now, today, in evangelical churches, we have, by and large, lost um, a a sense of appreciation for the supper. Ray Van Nesty, who is an Old Testament professor, has a really wonderful article on on uh, the Lord's Supper in the context of the local church. And he gives, he gives the following reasons why evangelicals basically undervalue the Lord's Supper. Uh, the first thing he says is there's, there's a lack of appreciation of ritual. Regardless of what you think of the word ritual, that's exactly what we're doing when we do the Lord's Supper. We do the same thing every time. The elders don't ever get together and go, you know what? We've done this exactly the same way for 24 and a half years. Maybe we should like mix it up a little bit. No. Maybe we should do the Maybe we should do the juice first. No. Maybe we should maybe we should just say something different. I mean, maybe we should read a, a maybe we should read a poem or something. No. There's a ritual to it. There's a tradition to it. And there's a reason why that ritual or that tradition is in place, but 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 for the most part um evangelicals don't appreciate ritual or tradition. In fact, ritual and tradition are basically seen to be bad and uh really very unappealing. And so Van Neste says lack of appreciation of ritual. Then he says lack of appreciation of symbolism. I like this point. He he says he says in short we've lost our poetry and as a result have little appreciation for the symbolic okay. so when when you come in on a on a lord's day when we're going to have the lord's supper and there's a there's a table over here and it's got trays and you know that in those trays is bread and the fruit of the vine and it's off here to the side, there's there's symbolism in in everything. Okay. By the way, I mean there's symbolism to the pulpit being where it is. There's symbolism to the table being where it is. There's symbolism in the bread. There's symbolism in the cup. It's it is uh, it is rich in symbolism. And Van Nesty's point is is that is that not only have we reduced the Lord's Supper to mere symbolism, we don't appreciate the symbolism. And yet, in Scripture, of course, symbolism is often rich, and it is, it is designed by God to, to do what? To grip the heart, even to grip the imagination. There's something behind the symbolism that is, that is designed to, to, to lay hold of us, and yet we live in a culture where, as he says, we've lost our poetry. Why does he say that? Well, poetry is, is of course, written symbolism. We have no appreciation for it. So we diminish the symbolism and then reduce the Lord's Supper to mere symbolism. He also says... Uh, there's, there's oftentimes a focus on the negative. He actually has a funny line. He says, Baptists are better at telling what the Lord's Supper isn't than what it is. <laughs> Baptists are usually pretty good about being able to tell you why the Lord's Supper isn't that important. Or in the words of uh, Millard Erickson, Baptists can wax eloquent on the absence of Christ in the Supper. You know, the presence of Christ, the absence of Christ. It's actually a brilliant statement. Anyway, think about it. So we focus on the negative, And so we, we, um, what we know is, is that the way we do communion is not like the way the Catholics do communion. And it's not like the way the Lutherans do communion. And it's not like the way the Anglicans do communion. So then they go, well, well what is it? Oh, I don't know, but I know what it's not. He says, lack of substantive teaching on the supper. I would would say lack of not only biblical, but also confessional teaching on the supper. Some of the richest statements regarding the nature of the Lord's Supper are found in our Protestant confessions. Our confession in particular is my favorite. And so people don't appreciate what they don't understand. And many churches don't take the time to teach on the ordinances, let alone even to teach on the the doctrine of the church. And so they don't know what they're doing. I mean, you know, you you, you sing one less song, the preacher preaches for 10 less minutes, and then you pass out a hermetically sealed uh, wafer that's attached to the top of a hermetically sealed little cup of grape juice, and everybody gets one, and, and just nobody gets full from it, and they wonder what's the point. Number five, entertainment culture. So, you know, in entertainment culture, by the way, entertainment culture, you know what the the, the biggest fear is? Is dead air. Right? Dead air. Do you young people know what dead air means? It's kind of like what you're doing right now. That's dead air, right? No, No noise, no sound, right? And so in an entertainment culture, you've got to keep things moving. Well, then when you have the Lord's Supper, guess what happens? Everything comes to this, this wonderfully silent, still, slow-moving thing in which there's no noise other than passing trays. And you know. By the way, we don't do music while we pass out the elements on purpose. I know a lot of people come from traditions where you're singing a song or there's a solo going on while the bread's being passed out and the cup's being passed out. And the reason we don't do that is because this is a time of meditation and contemplation, and even if, uh, you know, we're singing the old rugged cross, I'm, I'm thinking about singing the song, I'm not necessarily... Examining myself and confessing my sins. And so we have this, keep things moving, keep things lively, and really, when you think about it in terms of entertainment value, the Lord's Supper is incredibly boring. Right? Notice the way I qualified that. In terms of entertainment value, the Lord's Supper is incredibly boring. Then he says, last, uh, joyless observance. <laughs> so some traditions, people just simply look at the, at the communion service as the beat myself up over my sin's time. All right. Well, hopefully we're not given to, to, to any of those things. And so as Paul gets to these words of institution, he wants us to see in the words of institution how we ought to so value the supper that we partake of it in a way that reflects its true value and worth. So Paul starts off, verse 23, he says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, in which he was betrayed took bread. So the the first part of verse 23 is this uh, tradition language again. He's already used it in 11.2, talking about the traditions, which I passed down. Uh, So remember, he'll use, by the way, the same language in reference to the gospel, um, for I delivered to you that which I first received, right, that Christ Jesus Died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So, when Paul uses that deliver, receive language, as I pointed out at the beginning of chapter 11, this is uh, the language of tradition. Apostolic tradition is inspired tradition, it's scriptural tradition. Uh, but it was tradition that was handed down and then received. So religious instruction, theological instruction, biblical instruction, right? Paul actually it goes beyond just the gospel and the Lord's Supper um, in terms of living the Christian life or certain um, aspects of church life. Those would have been traditions that the apostles handed down to the churches that the churches then would have in scripturated form, and that's that was how what you believed and how you lived. And so Paul says very clearly, "I received." from the Lord, and probably through the other apostles. The reason I think that is because Paul's version of the Lord's Supper here is actually very close to Luke's, okay? So I don't think that Paul's necessarily saying, Jesus taught me specifically how to do the Lord's Supper. I think I received from the Lord, i.e. through the other apostles, for instance, uh, and I delivered it to you. I taught you. I handed it down to you. And then he says this, second part of verse 23, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now, he gives the setting for the words of the Lord Jesus. What's interesting is that phrase, in the night in which he was betrayed, is not found in any of the other Gospels. That that phrase is not found um, in in the um, description of the Lord's Supper in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And so, um, it it could very well be a part of the tradition that Paul received. It could be um, part of the Pauline tradition itself. It it could be something that Paul's adding here for the sake of emphasis. So, he says, in the night in which he was betrayed. So, Tom Schreiner says, the words may be included, the night in which he was betrayed, because they testify to Jesus' self-giving love for others, even when his life was threatened. By way of contrast, the Corinthian social elite are consumed with their own interests and their own stomachs at meals celebrating the Lord's Supper. So the very thing that you say you're doing, you have to understand, it started in the night in which Jesus himself was betrayed which, of course, is the greatest act of self-sacrifice and love ever demonstrated. And so the very thing that you're observing, which is based on self-sacrifice and love, is being observed by you in a way that's absolutely contrary to love and self-sacrifice. Now, you see the word betrayed, right? I think almost all of our English translations probably say betrayed. that focuses on a specific act, right, by, by Judas. The interesting thing about the, about the text, about the word in particular, is that Paul does not say the night in which he was betrayed and then use a tense that that focuses on, a specific action, he uses the imperfect in the night in which he was being handed over. Now, the word that we have as betray is better translated as handed over or delivered over. It's the very same word that Paul uses in Romans 4.25, in Romans 8.32, and it is the very same word that comes from the suffering servant song in Isaiah 53, and I think that it should better be understood as God delivering over Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins as opposed to Judas's act of betrayal. The father delivers over the son, okay? He was, he was delivered over for our, um, for our transgressions, Romans 4.25, and raised up for our justification. If God did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And it is that very language that finds its, its, um, its roots in what God does to the suffering servant, where he is delivered over for the transgressions of the many. So I want to suggest to you that really what's in view here is, of course, Judas's betrayal ends up being a part of it, but but a relatively small part in the sense that the bigger picture is what God is doing, not what Judas did. So in the night in which his uh, handing over and delivering over was beginning, he took bread. All throughout Jerusalem that night, there were heads of households that were doing exactly the same thing. What Jesus is doing in the upper room on the night that the Passover is being observed, is actually nothing special in a sense. And he takes bread like every other head of a household, and he takes that bread, and he does what every other member of the household does that's leading the Passover, and that is, he takes it, and as he gives thanks, he breaks it. Simple. People did it, all over Jerusalem, thousands of times that night. But nobody said, this is my body. Only Jesus. He takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body. And the text just says, "Which is for you, okay?" So, which is the idea of which is being delivered over for you, which is being given for you. Now you have to you have to remember put yourself put yourself in in the uh, reclined position of one of those early disciples around that table and. Had you ever observed Passover with Jesus before? Well, the answer is, yeah, the year before. Oh, and the year before. Perhaps even the year before. And then, if you hadn't done it with Jesus, uh, you at least did it with your family, the year before and the year before, really as far back as you can remember. And so here you are, disciple, and you, you, you're you kind of like, okay, this is the ritual. I know what's coming. And then he says... This is my body, which is given for you. I have no proof of this. But I have no doubt that the disciples around that table, what? What? What did he just say? I've never heard a rabbi say that before. I've never heard my dad say that before. I never heard grandpa say that before. Did he actually say, this is my body, which is for you? And the answer is that is exactly what he said. And as he broke it, as he broke the bread, it was the breaking of the bread that that symbolized the breaking of his body in suffering and death. So the bread of the Passover meal is, is radically transformed at that moment. To now symbolize, not the Passover, but to symbolize now the body of Jesus that is about to be given in a, as, as a sacrifice for our sins. Gives thanks, breaks the bread, this is my body, which is given for you this do in my remembrance. So, in other words, Jesus is, this is why we call it the words of institution, because Jesus just does something that is incredibly radical at that point, and then he turns around and he tells his disciples, now you're going to be doing this in remembrance of me from now on. This is no longer going to be the... um, the, the the Passover meal for you, it's transformed. You're going to do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, likewise, also the cup after eating. So we're going to fill in that a little bit. You can see in the New American Standard, for instance, in the same way that I, he took the cup, he took is in italics. So in the same way, this cup also after supper. And then he says, something that nobody else had ever heard before either, and that is he holds up that cup, the cup of blessing in the Passover, and he says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Nobody had ever heard that before. No rabbi had ever said that before. Nobody had even thought it before. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. What's happening at that very moment, the new covenant, the new covenant, of course, is revealed in the old covenant, right? New covenant, this is probably specifically Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, where God promises the people in exile, by the way, this is in the... um, This is in the book of Consolation, Jeremiah 29 through 33, 34, which is written to those who are in exile, book of Consolation. God is telling them, promising them, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which your fathers broke. So guess what? The new covenant, this is really simple but really important, is really new. It's not not a renewed covenant. It's a new covenant. It's a totally different covenant. It's a way better covenant. It's not just a different administration of the same covenant. It's a new covenant. And so, Jeremiah says... That um, there is coming a day in which God's going to make a new covenant. It's not going to be like the old. And then he delineates a series of new covenant blessings that are going to be true of the people of God. And uh, one of those is, I'm going to write my law on your heart. I'm going to internalize my law in your heart, Ezekiel 36, 25, 27. I'm going to give you a new heart, put my spirit within you. Take out the heart of stone, put it in place, a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a new heart, put my law on your heart. And then he says, and everyone's going to know me from the greatest to the least. No one's going to have to teach his neighbor, know the Lord. In other words, in this covenant, which is a better covenant, everybody in that covenant is going to have a saving knowledge of God, not dependent on a human mediator to communicate that knowledge because this knowledge is going to come from God himself through his spirit so that, John chapter 6, they are taught of God. So here's, here's the thing. Under the old covenant, you had a physical physical covenant national covenant and then you had you had an Israel within Israel so you had lots and lots of people under the old covenant that didn't know the lord Deuteronomy 29, 4, 30, verse 6, I've not given you heart to know me, even though they're in the covenant. They don't have a circumcised heart. They may be circumcised in the flesh, but they're not circumcised of heart. They don't know me. So you had lots of people under the old covenant that didn't know God. Under the new covenant, everybody that's really in the covenant knows God. It's one of the reasons why we say that it's only believers who are in this covenant. Okay? There are, there, the, 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 the whole principle of, of physical descent bringing you into the covenant is no longer the reality under the new covenant. The new covenant is a, is a spiritual reality where everybody that's brought into that covenant actually knows God and then here's 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 the the grand promise and i will forgive their sins and their iniquities i will remember no more a, a permanency to forgiveness do you know that if you were a uh, uh, a thinking Israelite, you would have come to the conclusion that the forgiveness that came through Yom Kippur or bringing the sacrifices was actually not an absolute nor permanent forgiveness. You, you know, you could, you could actually come to that conclusion on your own. Do you know why? Because you keep having to do the same thing over and over and over and over again. through the new covenant, better sacrifice once for all, sins forgiven, remembered no more. Jesus holds that cup up, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So what's happening in that upper room in Jerusalem on that night is, is a massive... Redemptive, historical shift. All that the Old Testament had promised, all that it looked forward to in types and shadows and prophecies was right there on the brink of actually being fulfilled. That new covenant that Jesus just said, I'm I'm inaugurating it. That new covenant was the, was the promised gospel itself that was now going to be fulfilled by Jesus offering himself up and shedding his blood. So Jesus gives us the very symbol of the fulfillment, which is the Lord's Supper, using the symbol of the type, which is Passover, as its basis. So the Lord's Supper is symbolic of the redemptive work of Christ, which is the fulfillment of Old Testament redemption, that is Passover and Exodus. So Jesus takes the elements of the Passover meal and reinterprets them, and they're never again the same. Do this, he says as often as you drink, in remembrance of me. Do what? Observe the supper. Christian, do you understand that Jesus commands us to observe the supper? Said this before, but it's saying it to the choir when I say it on a Wednesday night. And that is, it it baffles me that there are Christians who do not obey this simple command when there is regular opportunity to obey it. The Lord's Supper should be so precious to us that we look at obeying the words of Jesus as a great privilege and blessing. Then Paul says this, verse 26. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So he's told us what Jesus, has, uh, what Jesus did and what Jesus said. Now he's telling us what the church does when the church observes the supper. So for as often as you eat the bread, drink the cup, that is whenever you do this, whenever you assemble to eat the bread, whenever you assemble to to drink the cup, you're doing something. The death of the Lord you proclaim until he comes. Now in the context for the Corinthians, It's absolutely contradictory to proclaim his death and then divide the body by the very way that you're proclaiming his death. The Lord's Supper tells a story. The table tells a story. It makes a proclamation. So Paul says, when you you take that bread and you eat it together, and when you take that cup and you drink it together, you're actually doing something, which is more than just eating and drinking. The eating and drinking is is essential, but there's something in the eating and drinking which is an act of proclamation. The church gathered to observe the, the Lord's Supper is actually making a proclamation And what that proclamation is, what we're doing by our participation of eating and drinking is we are declaring that Christ died for sinners. And we're proclaiming he will come again. That's what we're proclaiming. We we, we are making, so, so you might not think about it. You might think, well, it's a rather passive thing. Paul says it's not passive at all. Your participation in the supper, by the very fact that you are participating by faith, you are making a proclamation when you eat the bread and drink the cup, Christ Jesus died for sinners, and he died for me. And I'm to do this until he comes, which means I'm proclaiming he will again i'm making a historical proclamation and i'm making an eschatological proclamation by simply eating and drinking in faith said maybe 2 or 3 months ago you know there's we're sitting there and we pass out the bread and and you couldn't hear people eating the bread right Said that's the sound of faith. When the church gathers for this and you hear them eating the bread, that's the sound of faith. Maybe we should be louder when we drink, but it's the sound of faith. It's the proclamation. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper, there is this, there is this magnificent looking back, but there's also this, this wonderful anticipation, expectation for the future. So to proclaim Christ's death will require, of course, self-examination, as the next paragraph will tell us. But it also, of course, requires an awareness of not just me, but of one another. So we're not just proclaiming Christ died for me. We're proclaiming that. But we're also proclaiming Christ died for us. There's there's an awareness of the body. And so Paul is reminding these Corinthians that this supper is a solemn supper of remembrance it's a memorial meal whereby we we recall vividly with visible words the bread and the cup what jesus has done for us and for our salvation and so just as, just as generations of Israelites would gather once a year to observe that Passover, and throughout those generations, those, those little Israelite and Jewish children would say, um, say Daddy, why do, we, why do we do this? Why do we do this? Well, son, let me tell you why we do this. Our people were in slavery in the house of bondage in the land of Egypt, and our God with a mighty outstretched arm redeemed us and brought us into liberty. So guess what? We have a better story. We have a better story than that. As glorious as that story is, we have a better story. Daddy, why do we eat bread, and why do you and mommy drink that little tiny cup of grape juice? Well, let me tell you. Because your mom and your dad were in the house of bondage of sin, and God sent his son to pay the full penalty for our sin, to redeem us from our sins, and we eat that bread and drink that cup to remember what Jesus has done for us. And by the way, what he's done for us, he can do for you. How many wasted evangelistic opportunities go unseized because we don't think in terms of trying to tell the next generation what we do and why we do it. We're called to remember it. So the call in the Bible to not forget is the call not to neglect. The call in the Bible to remember is the call to make something a priority and to take action. And so in the supper we are commanded, do this in remembrance of me. We're called to remember him, to remember his person, to remember his work. Jesus places this this moral obligation on those who would be his disciples to remember him by doing this very thing of partaking and proclaiming. Here's this wonderful picture in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 18. So Jethro, remember who Jethro is? Ellie Mae's cousin? No. You remember Jethro, right? Jethro is Moses' father-in-law, and he comes to visit. And there's this, there's this wonderful passage where Jethro and Moses and the elders of Israel sit and eat a meal before God. Exodus eighteen twelve. they ate the meal before God. Some commentators point out the fact that this idea of eating a meal in the presence of God is, is, is reminiscent of the fact that, that, that it is as if God himself is the host for Moses and Jethro and the elders of Israel. Stop and think that as we gather Lord's day by Lord's day to observe the supper, we have a host. And it's the Lord Jesus himself who says, I've I've spread the feast for you to feed your faith. And the feast is me. So, do this in remembrance of me. Eat this meal in remembrance of me. When you, when you take that bread, remember my broken body, remember my suffering, remember my death. When you take that cup, stop and think about the cup of wrath that I drained to its dregs for your sake. Think about my sacrifice which was the shedding of my own blood for the remission of your sins. Think about it. Let it it grip you. Let it move you. And and, and really, as we we partake of the Lord's table, what we're doing is we are observing, as the people of God, a gospel ordinance. We're celebrating the very gospel. We're celebrating a gospel which is Christ in the place of sinners. J.I. Packer, I saw this wonderful quote, of course Packer's an Anglican, but he says, what we need more than anything else at the Lord's table is a fresh grasp of the glorious truth that we sinners are are offered mercy through faith in the Christ who forgives and restores, out of which faith comes all the praise that we offer and all the service that we render. That's what we do. By faith, we come to the table and we say, we're sinners. Christ is a glorious Savior. And I need to eat and to drink by faith, feeding my soul on Christ. And as I do that, Christ is not only remembered, but what is remembered is now being proclaimed. Well, Spurgeon wrote a wonderful hymn about the Lord's Supper. I'd like to read it to you as we close. Amidst us, our beloved stands and bids us view his pierced hands, points to the wounded feet and side, blessed emblems of the crucified. What food luxurious loads the board when at his table sits the Lord, the wine how rich, the bread how sweet, when Jesus deigns the guests to meet. If now with eyes defiled and dim, we see the signs but see not him, O may his love the scales displace and bid us see him face to face. Our former transports we recount when with him in the holy mount, these cause our souls to thirst anew his marred but lovely face to view. Thou glorious bridegroom of our hearts, thy present smile a heaven imparts. O lift the veil, if veil there be, let every saint thy beauties see. As we come to the Lord's Supper as the body of Christ, let us remember these wonderful, blessed truths And to come to them with a sense of solemnity and reverence and holy celebration for what our Lord Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the observance of the Lord's table and we pray that you would Remind us tonight through these words just how important the supper is, and we pray that you would help us tonight to to tune our hearts aright, that we might see the supper for what it is, that you'd give us eyes to see to see beyond the symbol and the sign, and to see our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for his great love for us. Lord, what astounding love that he would lay down his life for us. Father, out of a faith that receives that mercy and grace from you, may that faith result in worship and praise and obedience and service to you. In Jesus' name, amen.